This morning, I will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 9 through 18. I want to say, if you know me at all, I love to preach about favor and blessing and protection and community. I love that stuff. That's what charges me. I am not a Debbie Downer, never have been. Um, I always see the glasses. Well, it's full today, not when I'm done. But it's usually half full to me and never half empty. But God began to deal with something a couple of weeks ago. And it was one of the most difficult times in study. I began to pray, and I have prayed and fasted over this because I believe God gave me this for somebody. I believe there is somebody's life that will be changed. And it's not always easy, but it's always necessary to hear when God speaks. And so I have prayed and fasted, and, and I'm asking you to be engaged to what the Spirit is saying. That's uh, sometimes the most needed things to hear are the toughest things to help us. And as much as we love favor and blessing, we oftentimes need to understand the reality and it's not always just cookies and cream and everything's fine, but that there is a reality to why we are in this room and where we are headed. And so I read to you in the NLT version, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and in the future generations. No one will remember what we're doing now. I, the teacher, was king of Israel and lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God had dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all meaningless, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand the frustrating or pursuing all this is like chasing the winds. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increased sorrow. And for the next few moments, I want to talk about hell's greatest fear. Hell's greatest fear. Now, I'd like us all to pray right now for a covering that would come over us and for us to hear what God has to say. Lord, I come before you as a broken vessel. I am asking for your direction once again. I need your covering. Your word says that he that hath an ear, let him hear. And so, God, I'm asking that we would have a hearing spirit in this house to be able to understand that you're with us through this morning and that you're going to help us navigate through something that is going to impact us. And so, God, I'm asking that you would cover me with your anointing and, Lord, cover us in this house together in unity, that we would take the next step together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Philosopher George Santiana once said, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. History will repeat itself. That's why mom jeans are back. And I don't think we've learned a thing from the 80s. Just to be honest with you. Fashion comes back. History repeats itself. And that's why we call it a news cycle. How quickly we forget the past when we're so zoned in in the present moment. How quickly we can forget. A lot of times we say, oh, it's the good old days. We always like to look back at the good old days. I was born in 79, but I was a 90s boy for real. Everything that shaped me and kind of molded me was really from the 90s. And I remember guys would say, man, you know, the music in the 70s, that's where they would, they would listen to the oldies. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I heard a yes in the house. Yeah, I, I listened to the oldies. That's when music was real. That's, that's, what, that's when music was real. These days, you don't even know what they're saying. But I remember looking at those people and be like, what a clown. Like, no way. Today's stuff's way hot. It's way better. There's no way. And I would look at those that said yesterday was better than today. But I find myself slowly looking back and saying, they were right. I look at the 90s, man, that was the decade. 
Like, I don't know if y'all know, the 90s was a decade for me. And so when you look at 2000 and where we're headed, like, man, I love the 90s. But history repeats itself. We can see it through cycles. It seems to go back. And today's climate is no different. We're watching history repeat itself with all of the frustration and all of the anger and some of the anxiety and the bitterness. The words we're choosing to communicate now. The platforms we use to vent how we feel. All of that in today's climate has become so volatile, but yet we often forget that this is not new to us. I could take you in scripture back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him in his heart. God literally felt sorrow when he looked at the human race because it said they continually had evil in their heart. It started in Genesis. I could take you to Genesis chapter 18 and 19 where it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to talk about identity crisis? You want to talk about not understanding where they are relationally? That's where we get the word sodomite from, the sin. How bad could it have really been for God to say the best answer is burn it all? It wasn't like I'm going to send them a plague, I'm going to send them something. No, he just torched the whole thing. It's terrible. How bad was it in Sodom and Gomorrah for him to torch those cities? I could take you to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 through 30. There was a famine in the land, and here these women were hungry. Right now, one of the hot topics is abortion. And we see the prevalent conversation that's going on on the either you believe in, in pro-life or it's pro-choice. And there's a battle on both sides, on the value of life. When is life? These women at this time had their babies. These are not pregnant women. These are women with children. They're babies. They're in a famine, and the best they thought they could do was to take their baby's life and cook them and eat them. How bad does society have to get till you think the best answer for me is to take my child's life and eat it? I could take you all through the book of Acts when we talk about Saul, who later we are known to uh, come to know as Paul, where his sole job was to just get online and look at your Snapchat, look at your Facebook, your Insta story. He could look at all of your platforms and figure out who was the most churched person, who had the most uh, likes and who had the most shares. And you know what? I'm going to their house because I will take them and will put them in jail and later to stone and kill them. We see the persecution of the church. The church has not been persecuted yet. We think we've been persecuted. We felt persecuted when we shut down for eight whole weeks. My God, the whole world's coming to an end. We're online for eight weeks. And here, Saul is going from house to house, ripping people out of their homes and imprisoning them. You talk about history repeating stuff. There is nothing new spiritually under the sun. The fight for life, the fight for eternity, the fight for the kingdom of God, all of that has been at play since the beginning of time. I take you to something a little more relevant, 1918, where the worldwide influenza epidemic hit, and by 1920, 20 million had perished. 500,000 in the U.S. alone had died from the influenza. I could take you to October 1929, where the stock market crashed and it caused the Great Depression, where everyone was selling everything, trying to figure out what they were going to eat, how to keep a roof over their head. And again, it, it, it just escalated from there, and everybody was fearful and wondering where are we going to be able to, how can we survive what we're coming through? 1939 and 1945, World War II, we thought that was Armageddon. People came to Christ, and people started their faith journey and wondering, is this the end of the world? Everybody is fighting. Scripture was fulfilled with World War II. In 1991, if you remember the Desert Storm War, the Gulf War, I remember me and my brother when we were kids, uh, we had a 13-inch little TV, and I remember for the first time we watched a war that was televised. It looked like Star Wars. When those missiles were headed over and that night, it looked like those, those lights were just, I mean, firing off into other countries. I remember watching that and thinking, my God, what's going to happen to us? We're watching war as we, it's no longer something you read. You're looking into somebody's life as they are being 
carpet bombed. You look at 2000, the Y2K. Everybody was so worried that, man, and you talk about no toilet paper. Listen, the only thing I stocked up on was Mountain Dew and some cookies, clearly. I had a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law. We lived in Salt Lake at the time. They were like all in. They were all in. Like, I mean, they had their pantry. I was like, man, they can't kick us out because I married their sister. So like, I'm in. Like, I wasn't worried. We're going to their house to eat because there's nothing left in the stores. But you talk about no toilet paper. These folks are buying up everything because, man, as soon as 2000 hit, guess what's going to happen? No gas pumps, can't access your money in your account. All of that stuff. And we thought the end of the world is happening once again. And ironically, in 2000, the presidential debate between Vice President Al Gore and Texas Governor George W. Bush in the race for who would become the president. And shocker, we didn't know November 3rd. It went on to be battled in court where the Supreme Court would tell us who would become the president because they had enough counting votes in Florida. Sounds like today. We still don't know. We're trying to recount and count. We've been there. We've done that. This is nothing new to us. I could take you to 2001, 9-11, when those two planes hit the World Trade Center and one into the Pennsylvania a rural area there and, and Pentagon was hit. And I remember we were fighting for our lives. We thought this is it. The terrorist attacks are coming. This is it. People were flocking to the church. Only after the dust settles, back to reality. My brother and I, my wife and my sister-in-law, we went into New York shortly after. I think it was just within a week of 9-11. And I remember as we walked those streets and we seen miles of dump trucks trying to get in to haul out the, the debris. And every New Yorker would look us in the face. And if you've ever been to New York, we visited it frequently. That's very abnormal. Every New Yorker, New Yorker were, they were looking at us. They, they, they had their heads up. And then several months later, we went back again to the same thing. Nobody would look us in the eye. Everybody had their head down. They were so busy at what they were doing, they didn't have time to talk to anyone. I could take you through the 2001 anthrax scare when you were afraid to open your mail. We could go over time and time again of what's happened in history. And every time we have seen, every time there's been a crisis, there's been a moment of faith that rises. Every time we have gone through something that has rattled and shake, shaken us, there has been something that has risen in the church that we have become more aware of the coming of the Lord. It has been more evident than any other time before than in time of crisis for us to say, it's time for us to wake up and we'll have those messages and, 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 we'll, and we'll talk about that. But this is nothing new. We've had end of the world's predictions for years William Miller calculated that the world would end between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. And shocker, he was wrong. Matter of fact, in that time, they called it the Great Disappointment. How would you like that attached to your name? I could take you over to Edgar Weinsnant. He was a former NASA engineer, a Bible student. He predicted the rapture would occur somewhere between September 11th and 13th, 1988. He even wrote a book. 88 Reasons Why God's Coming Back in 88. Sold 4.5 million copies. How ticked are you that you can't return that on Amazon? He didn't come. And I think the funny part or the ironic part is his statement. Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. If there were a king in this country, I could gamble with my life. I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 88. If you could think he, uh, there was no king because he would have lost it all. He gambled, and only if God was wrong. And yet here we are, again, in the 11th century, over 144 predictions that the world is coming to an end. Whether it was the rapture, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a sickness, food, whatever it is, over 144 of them. There are four documented end of the world predictions for this year, and one of them is that Armageddon will take place in 2020. So unless it happens in six weeks, that dude's wrong. There's already three documented cases of the end of the world prediction in the 22nd and 23rd century. One for 2029, 2239, and 2280. Already set that the Lord's coming back. What's my point? Every generation has had a crisis point. Everyone. We have all had to face our own immortality through every one of those, every season. We realize that. The church fills up. We begin to talk about end-time prophecies. We begin to look at Scripture and what's going on in the Middle East and what's happening here in the United States of America. We all look at that. And it brings us to this crisis point. 
And no doubt in today, 2020, it's no different for us. Global pandemic, injustice protests, rioters, economic strain, global peace that's trying to be forged through Israel in the Middle East, this presidential election, all of it, and it all leads us to the question of what's next? What happens next? History has not been written yet from tomorrow, from the very next moment on. What is next? It starts the conversation of how will my finances, what do they really look like? What's that, how's that going to play out? What kind of world am I leaving my boys, my girls? What kind of world are we really handing off to the next generation? It triggers the cliche statements of the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. It triggers the statement, I'm sure glad he holds the world in the palm of his hand. It triggers the statement that we have all read or used that I am so grateful that man will let me down, but I know the God that will never let me down. And we'll believe that and we'll claim to that, and those are all great, but we truly operate and communicate with the subconscious assumption that there is only heaven left to choose. That is the subconscious place that we come to. That we say, man, I'm so glad that I am in the palm of his hand, and that is true. But we run those words as if that is the only option or the only end. If we can believe and quote, we rehearse, we stand firm on the promises of God. He'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. And we'll talk about these scriptures, and they'll fire us up, and everyone in this room should get fired up when you talk about that you have never walked alone and that he is protecting and blessing you. We can do all of that, and we'll quote all of heaven, but we have to be able, if you're going to quote scripture, that you have to be able to quote and understand all of it. The Bible says that all scripture is given for, for reproof and correction. All of it's profitable, and we can't afford to cherry-pick what the Bible is saying. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Whereas by one man sin entered the world, and by sin, and so death passed up on all men, for all that, have, for that all have sinned. Everyone in this room has sinned. Everyone. None of us are exempt from sin. That's comforting to me. You know why? Because that means I'm not the only one who sins. You sin too. That ought to take comfort. Some of you are like, listen, we're all in this journey together. If you listen to Pastor John's message last week, if you haven't, you need to get online and listen to it. Every one of us struggles with something personally and privately. And the job of the church is to rally around each other regardless of what it is because the scripture says that such were some of you. Every one of us, who are we to shun or cast someone out when we have been in the very situation that they have been? It's funny how our sins look worse when somebody else commits them. Everyone's born into sin. Every one of us under the right circumstance could fall to sin. I will never do that. Those are the scariest words. I'd never do that. The right circumstance, we all could fall. Hebrews 9, 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. We die once in our flesh. Every one of us will expire. And then it says, then there's the judgment. What is the judgment? That's the conclusion or the decision that is made. And when you look at the decision for sin, it's death. There is a second death that is coming, which is why you go to 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That's why I can say Romans 14, 11, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone in this room and out of these doors will have the day at judgment to see Jesus Christ. We will see God at the throne. Everyone. Nobody is exempt. So we say that we've all sinned and we all must see, see Christ at the judgment seat. There's a lot of scripture. Now, I'm trying to walk you through scripture because I want you to understand this isn't a man-made doctrine. This isn't something that was conjured up for personal gain. This is what the word of God, what we quote so often and believe and have seen miracles because of promises. This is what the word is telling us that's coming. And when you look at Ecclesiastes 12, 14, it says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Everything will be scrutinized. Every secret thing that we do will be scrutinized at judgment. And it even says your good secrets and your evil secrets. What secrets do we really have? 
Are we, do we have secrets of things that we watch that we shouldn't be watching? Is it secrets of things that we get involved with relationships we have no business, that nobody else knows relationally that you're doing behind closed doors that nobody can see? Or do we have secrets of maybe we dropped off groceries at somebody's house and didn't tell them? Maybe our secrets are we came to Pride and Shine and I didn't have to post anything. I just helped somebody that couldn't take care of their lawn, but God seen it. Mark my words, God sees everything that we are doing and we all have secrets. What secrets do we harbor in our spirit? Are they things of the flesh or are they things that empower the kingdom of God? But every one of those secrets will be revealed. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have we not cast out devils? In thy name done wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from you, you that work iniquity. Just because you check the box off on Sunday does not mean you have a relationship with God. Just because you claim to have a position does not mean you have a relationship. Just because you have the mic does not mean you have a relationship with God. Just because you're on the praise team, it doesn't give you a pass into heaven. Just because you're on the fit team, it doesn't give you a pass straight into heaven. Every one of us have to have a personal relationship with God. It is a daily relationship with God. We can't fool people with what we do in the house but he can see the secrets and what we are doing privately when nobody else is looking. That's why in Acts 16, 17 through 19, here Paul is walking and there's a, a lady that's been following him. And she keeps saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. She kept saying that. And that's correct. It's 100% correct. After a day, Paul's annoyed. He turns around, tells her to shut up and, and casts a spirit out of her. Well, why would that be so? She's saying the right things. She said the right thing, but her spirit was wrong. Let that be a lesson. That, that stirred me up because are we saying something different than what we're living? Are we saying something and yet our lifestyle says something different? Are our neighbors looking at us and saying, hey, they've got the right words, but their lifestyle shows me that they're not a Christian. They've never even asked, reached out to me, haven't helped me, they haven't done anything. But hey, they'll put on their suit and go to church on Sunday. Is what we're saying matching our character? Is what we're saying matching our spirit, who we really are? You can have the right words and you can fool people, but God knows your spirit. He sees it. Don't confuse your ministry with your relationship with him. The one and a half hours that we gather here every Sunday is the smallest part of your week. But yet, the hour and a half that you're here can impact your week. And how it impacts your week will influence your eternity, where you're headed, where you're going. It's vital that what you do here, but it's more important that what happens outside of these doors. It's more important the decisions, the conversations, and the things that we engage in outside of these doors, they match up to what we are listening here and living out. It's very clear that one day we're going to meet God and that there will be judgment and we will spend eternity somewhere. Again, we love scripture. We love talking about heaven. And if you go to Revelations 21, 18 through 25, it talks about heaven. It paints this beautiful picture of what heaven will be like. Walls of jasper, streets of gold. It talks about these pearls that the gates are made out of. And that there is no light in heaven. Because the glory of God illuminates all of heaven. There's no darkness. Amen. There is no more suffering. There is no more pain. No more pain. Every time we have prayed for somebody that has suffered, when they get to heaven, they are whole, completely whole again. And we'll love it and we'll cling on to those words because we should, as the people of God, believe that and strive for that. Because one day, if we follow what the scripture says, we will be with him forever. And all of the toil and suffering and confusion will be gone. But if I can believe the picture that Jesus painted about heaven, then I ought to believe the picture that Jesus painted about hell. Listen to... Mark chapter 9, 43 through 48. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never will be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and he repeats himself, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, 
and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. There are a couple of things for us to know in this scripture. Number one, what does it profit to gain, uh, for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What is so important and valuable to us that we would sacrifice all of eternity for the temporal? What is it that we cling on to, that we hold on to? But one of the most disturbing parts of this is when you talk about the fire and the worm that never dieth. The fire that never quenches. It never stops. Looked up, the hottest fire that's been recorded is 4,990 Celsius. It would be enough if you would have just felt the heat for all of eternity. Never stops. Just the heat. But when you think of fire, you have to know that there's smoke with fire. Something's getting burnt. If you were here a couple of weeks ago and Pastor Jay Campbell talked to us at prayer about prayer, and he painted us a great picture of the fire hose that they have in their trucks. Not only is he a pastor at a church plant in just outside of Boston, but he's also, he serves his community as a, one of the fire chiefs. And he painted us this picture where this firefighter would come in with his hose, which is prayer, their lifeline. And they're taught to always stay by that lifeline. No matter, there's a lot of mills, a lot of textile mills out there and production and so as they would go into these mills, they would bring in this fire hose. And as long as you stayed attached to that fire hose, you were safe. There was one time in a fire where one of his friends, he got off that lifeline. It was dark. He couldn't see. He got off the lifeline. And as they retreated, because they couldn't win the fire, they couldn't put the fire out, they couldn't extinguish it, they began to retreat. When they went back to investigate, they, they seen the firefighter's hand on the wall as he was struggling to find the hose, fighting for his life. It wasn't the flames. It was the smoke that killed him too. He was six to ten feet away from the fire hose, and he perished in that fire, and all that was left that they could see was the mark on the wall from the soot from just the debris on the wall. It's the, it's the carbon monoxide, the carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, something called smoke particles, which is other gases that build into the smoke depending on what's caught on fire. You lose oxygen when you're in the fire, and you can't breathe. Several weeks ago, I took my bout with the coronavirus. I remember being at home, and seven steps to the bedroom. I would walk seven steps, and I could barely breathe. I slept more than I was awake. I was exhausted. I couldn't inhale properly, hardly any oxygen. And I would take a nap and get up, and I would do long exercises. But I remember fighting for every breath, just inhaling as deep as I could and trying to exercise my lungs so I could uh, just make sure I had enough oxygen in me. For days, I would struggle and, and, and even Bridget would look at me as I came down and sat in the chair, wheezing and trying to catch my breath. I couldn't imagine what it would be like for all of eternity not being able to take in a solid breath while fighting the heat that is going on there. And if that wasn't enough, let me take you to Matthew 13, 42. It shall come to pass into the fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And in this scripture... The Greek uses the word gnashing because it is, the most intense, it is the most intense word for human anguish that you could articulate. It is the worst, gnashing. And so here it paints the picture of not only is the heat tremendous, not only can I, I cannot inhale, but I come to a place where it's so great that I have to, it's gnashing. It's, it's, the anguish is too great for me, and it never, ever stops. Luke 16 paints the picture of a poor man and a rich man that passed away. And here, the poor man, or the rich man rather, is in hell. And he looks up to Abraham, a man that could have bought anything he wanted. Anything he wanted. And he asks Abraham to take his finger and to dip it in water just so he could have an ounce of relief. Temporal. 
could have had anything he wanted on earth, and all he could muster, couldn't buy his way out of hell, couldn't buy his way out of eternity. He was stuck there forever, and all he could do was ask them. And then Abraham said, can't do that. And then here is the most frightening part of the story for me, is this man looked at Abraham and said, I need you to go tell my five brothers about this place and warn them. And Abraham said, I'm not going to do it. They have prophets. They have people. I'm not going to do that. He can listen to them. And I began to think, why is that so important that he remembered his five brothers? That's the lesson he remembered. You will have your memory for all of eternity. For those that do not make it to heaven and they find themselves in hell, they will have the memory of their families. They will have the memory of the opportunities they had that they could have came to an altar and met Jesus and repented and turned their life over to him. The memory of every idle word that they have said, the memory of every idle action that they had done, it will be there forever. So not only do you find this picture of hell of one that is of constant torment with constant heat that you can't even breathe, that you are literally suffocating every single time, but you will remember the times that God had called you, that you should have taken the next step, and you decided it wasn't time. I have more time. It's just not the right time. They don't need to hear about this. I'm fine. And you live with that memory. You live with it for all of eternity. The choices that we make, not just physical but spiritual anguish of choices. Nobody decides I want to go to hell. Nobody but it's the everyday decisions that empower one kingdom or another. It's the everyday decisions that you make that will empower heaven or hell. Which way do I want to go? We have the choice. Revelations. Jeez. Revelations chapter 20. I want to read this. I saw a great throne of him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their words. And the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. As horrific as this sounds, there is still another option. Is your name written in the book of life? Hell's greatest fear is that your name is written in the book of life. Hell's greatest fear is a person that understands that I do not have to be bound to hell, but I have a choice to make. I have a choice. I have the opportunity, as long as I am breathing, I have the opportunity to make the right decision. It's not that I have to live in fear, but I have to understand that there is a reality that is coming our way. But all too often we fall asleep because we have been there. You read the open text. We've seen it before. This is nothing new. And what I am deathly afraid of, and I promise you, church, this is the hardest thing I've had to study and come up here and say, because this is not in my character or nature to do or talk like this. But when I have the fear and I can't sleep, because all I can think of, January 12th will come. February 5th, God willing, will come. Where will the church be then? Where will I be then? Will we fall back to where we were? Or will we take the moments that we consecrate ourselves out of fear in the moment and keep moving closer to him? You are hell's greatest fear. When you realize the potential and the power that you have and the authority that comes in your life with the word of God and having him in you, you are hell's greatest fear. So Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, Adam, much more than they which received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall they reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Read the whole chapter when you get home. Romans chapter 5. One man, sin entered the world. One man, life entered the world. What separated us, the way of escape was by one man. Matthew one twenty one tells us, And he shall bring forth the Son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save them from their sins. 
This isn't something that's so hopeless, that we're so desperate. But Jesus came to save us from our sins. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And for some, it will be just a week of giving out gifts and celebrating who he is. But really, it was the launching pad to our redemption. When he came, that launched us into community with him through his birth that led to his death that will lead to our life. Through him. John 3, 5 says, Jesus answered, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So if man brought in sin, and Jesus is our way of escape, and Jesus tells me that unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, that's why Acts chapter 2, 37 is powerful. They ask, what should we do? Then on 38, it gives us the formula, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So it's that easy for us to say, you know what, I've never walked into something, this is completely new to me, and that's fine. But I'm telling you, the answer to your sins is Jesus Christ. He gave us the formula for us to be able to walk away from something we deserve through sin to walk us into heaven with him for all of eternity. And that is through the baptism of the name of Jesus Christ, where the gift of God will infill you. Nothing I can do, nothing you deserve, but that it comes from him. It's the first step in your journey. And we love it because we think that message is only for the unchurched. We think it's, hey, you know what? Why don't we compel them to the feast? We should go out there. We should talk to them. Bring them in here. Show them scripture. And that's great. But what about the churched? What about me? Exodus 32, 33 says, And Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. It doesn't matter if you've been here three minutes or 30 years. When I sin, I break covenant with him. When I sin, there is now a gap in my relationship with him. For sin cannot abide in heaven where there is no sin. It's perfect up there. If Satan left, who were we that we could sit up there? If Satan with pride couldn't stay in heaven, who do I think I am if I have pride in my life do I think I'm better than sin where I can abide with him? There cannot be sin in heaven. And so when you look at Acts 3.19, it says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Listen, if you've been here and you've been going down a path and maybe you've just gotten jaded from life and there's sin in your life, all you have to do is repent. Make an about face. You can change the direction you're going into when you realize saying, hey, you know what? Maybe some things came in my life I wasn't planning on. I never planned to get here, but I'm here now. And so maybe if I just talk to Jesus and he'd repent and he'd forgive me of my sins, I can have my sin blotted out instead of my name blotted out. Jesus. That can happen today. That can happen this morning, that you can have your sin blotted out in your name written in. You don't have to wait for the perfect time or when things are going perfect to your will and your way, your timeline. It can happen this moment. Because my question to you is, what do you have to lose this morning? What is there to lose? If my people, which are called by my name, 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If you want the land to be healed, then there has to be forgiveness of sins. If there's forgiveness of sins, then he's heard from you because we turned from our wicked ways. Hell's greatest fear is you realizing that you don't have to operate and live in sin. Hell's greatest fear is the person that says, I don't have to live this way anymore. I don't have to be so jaded anymore. I don't have to just, listen, it's all full circle. I understand the climate. I understand where we are right now with the political scene, the financial scene. I get it all. But don't let the moment pass you by. And then don't let eternity pass you by by falling back into the moment. All too often, we come to a place where we've seen that high, right? We're in crisis mode. But I kept dealing this this two weeks. God, what's going to happen to me in December? What's going to happen to me come January or February when everything blows over and you decided not to come yet? Am I going to be the same person I was? Or am I going to be more consecrated? Am I going to be more on fire? Am I going to be more waiting to see what you're going to do through my consecration? Is my lifestyle going to match up to the words that I use? Can people see me for what I am? Am I truly seeking after him? Familiarity breeds contempt. You can get into a place where you've seen this before and you undervalue the urgency of eternity. Our greatest fear isn't the enemy. Our greatest fear is the environment. Our greatest fear isn't Satan will be with me right here. My greatest fear is the fire, it's the smoke. I can't breathe. I'm remembering. It's the environment, the wailing, the gnashing, the screaming of billions of people screaming because they missed their moment and they passed away thinking there was time. They didn't see that the times were drawing nearer. And then the moment that they got closer to him in their season of crisis, as soon as it blew over, they went right back to the old habits, right back to the old relationships, right back to the old scene. But I'm here to tell you, the greatest fear of hell is not Satan. The greatest fear of hell is the environment. The greatest hope of heaven is not the environment. The greatest hope of eternity of heaven is Jesus Christ. So while Satan wants to mess up your environment, God is wanting to walk into your environment. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that you can walk into a brand new environment with the Almighty God this morning, whether you've been here for three minutes or 30 years. Watch this. Here, Jesus, in chapter, it's Luke chapter 2, 42 through 48. Mary gave birth to Jesus. She had a miracle. It was a virgin birth. They knew the miracle was there. And so, now they go into a feast, a Passover feast. They're there together as a family. They start to leave. A day's journey into leaving. What happened? Hey, Joe, where's Jesus? I don't know, Mary. I thought you had Jesus. I don't have him. I thought you had him. I don't go ask cousin Bill. Hey, Bill, did you see? I didn't see Jesus. Maybe we should go to Martha. Martha might know Jesus. I don't see. Nobody knows where Jesus is. They turn around and they go find Jesus. You know what that tells me? How can you have a miracle in your life become so comfortable with the miracle that's in your life that you leave your miracle behind? How could she have given birth to the Almighty God and forget him behind? What miracle have you experienced in your life that you have seen the act of God in your life that you walked away because you forgot to past because you're so presently in the moment? My God, I can't forget what he did for me. I can't forget the healings that he had done for me. I can't forget the spiritual awakening that I've had and the calling that he gave on my life because I'm in a moment right now. And then when things just kind of, kind of move on, what do I do? I'll go right back to what's comfortable. Mary became comfortable with her miracle. Are you comfortable with your miracle? I want us to come around to the front. See, Proverbs 
chapter 1, it says, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Oftentimes, we've heard it said so many times, fear, we use it in awe. And the word fear, yara, has a masculine and, and feminine context that you can use that. We love to say it's the masculine version. We're in awe. But in this translation, when you break down scripture, it's in, its, it's in the feminine context. It literally is being afraid in terror. There are some good things that can happen when you're scared. There are some good things that'll happen when you get terrified. That's why I love going from fear to faith because it started because I was afraid. Now I've got a solid relationship with him, but I never want to forget that, not that I just love him, but that there still is a hell that I am still subjected to. I'm not grandfathered into heaven because I've been living this thing for 20 plus years. That's not why, I'm not grandfathered into it. But all too often, we use the cliches. All too often, we'll use the right verbiage. We'll put on the suit. We'll look good. We'll check the box off. My question to the church this morning is what are we really going to do when all this dust settles down and God decides to hold off on humanity and say, you know what, let me give them another crack at grace. Let me give them another crack at this and see if they have learned from the past. Did they learn something? If we can't worship together because it's too loud, what are you going to do in hell when it's too loud with the billions of screams? If we can't worship together as a body of one, how are we going to do it if we're in hell and there are millions of people around us? Will you be that uncomfortable there? Or is it more to be comfortable here in a house of like-minded where Jesus Christ can walk in the room and change your life? Ah! There are two that are gonna get baptized. They've said, I've had enough. They're changing their destiny. If you're in this room, and maybe this is your first time that you've come in contact with something like this again, this is not my, this is not my character to come out like this. But when I tell you for two weeks, I couldn't get out of this thing. I couldn't, I couldn't help but wonder, where will I be? Where will the church be? We cannot go, this city cannot afford a church to relax itself in the moment. You can't personally afford that. And neither could they. If you're in this room and you're saying, you know what, I've walked this. And you're saying, I've, I've done it on my own. You can be baptized today and get your sin blotted out and your name written in. And for the church, for those that have been here for so long, have we had any hidden sins that if we made it to glory and he judged our secrets, what would he say then? Have we become like Mary and maybe a little bit relaxed with Jesus and said, well, he was a miracle. He, he did pave the Red Sea. He, he did all these miracles for me. And then I kind of forgotten about that and gotten used to life with the right Christianese words. Or is there something inside of you that is saying, we're in a crisis point, but I'm not gonna let history not teach its lessons to me. Maybe he'll come tomorrow. Maybe it'll be the next election. Maybe it'll be, I, I don't know, but, I, but I'm asking you, I'm pulling for somebody. He sees you and he might give us another 20 years. I don't know. But we simply can't afford to go back. And if you're here and you want to be baptized in the name of Jesus, like not what, I, what scripture has mandated, you can walk right through those doors through the back. We can, have, we can help you back there and you can join. And if you're here and maybe you've just been jaded from history and we become such professional apostolics to where we have the right words, the right lingo, the right clothes, but yet we leave here after an hour and a half and it's the same junk, the same conversations, the same music, the same movies, the same things we do over and over again, that God has given us maybe one last opportunity to not repeat history. Don't be afraid of what's happened in the past. Learn from it because tomorrow's not promised, but this moment is given to you for a reason. I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance and we're going to sing. And however you feel comfortable, if you want to be baptized, I'll come right here and I'll be praying. We'll baptize you.
If you need prayer because you've been battling and you know that God's speaking to you right now saying, I've become laxed in my walk with him. I've just gotten used to this. You know what? This will all blow over. It's all going to be fine. This isn't a scare tactic. This is a reality moment for us to say, hey, listen, my hope is in Jesus. But I can't allow my hope to just minimize the reality of where I could be. Just because I have a great marriage doesn't mean I could treat my wife terrible because she won't leave me. It's a relationship, a daily relationship. And so why don't we begin to repent? We're going to watch as a life gets changed. Jesus, forgive us of our sins, God. Wash us of our sins. I'm sorry for saying things I should have done. Things I... We sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, the Lamb is overcome. We sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah, we sing hallelujah.